So I trust you know this is going to be some questions and answers at this time. Um, and uh, thank you very much for the questions. They're, they're inspiringly good, uh, which doesn't mean easy, but uh, good. There's 15 here. And I'm curious to know, and very welcome if that's the case, if anyone has a question they were thinking they'd like to ask live, because that's also part of what's possible. My intention, being aware that you've had some uh, rather comprehensive question responses and answers in previous moments, my intention is to try and answer the questions, all of them, even though that might involve uh, some brevity. We'll see if it's possible. I've just read them very quickly just now. And this doesn't commit you to having to ask it, but does anyone have a question they might have wanted to ask here, live? Because if I have some idea that they're there, I'll make space for them. You can change your mind at some point, if you wish, by waving your hand at me. And I'll, in a pause, take it as a sign that there might be a question. It might mean a response to what's here. But just to say a couple of things, part of what I think is important, is useful in this process is that we have a chance to see what our questions are. Of course, I'm hesitant to say answers, because I may not answer your questions. I, I will certainly endeavour to respond to them. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, in terms of how the teachings came to be, what we've received, where we have this idea of this sort of body of teaching, and that's what the Buddha taught... Much of it arose in relationship to situations and conversations and circumstances that were particular and specific. And so there was a lot of exploring of questions in the time of the Buddha and right on down to, to today it goes on. Um, just, uh, <laughs> there's one of these... So I'm just going to say, because actually in response to one question, is it okay to cherry-pick those parts of the Buddhist teachings that we find agreeable? Thank you. Um, no. <laughs> Not those parts we find agreeable. Those parts that we find useful. Yes. Do you hear the distinction? That which we find we always agree with or makes us feel comfortable or feels easy or pleasurable to us is not a good measure for telling what's useful. The only thing we can measure the value of teachings by is when we put this into practice, what happens? Does it lead to well-being, to wholesome development, to freedom, to peace, to um, wholesome outcomes? So we need to, I think, not take the idea that somehow I've got to read, study, follow and practice every single thing the Buddha ever said because he never said to any one of his followers, you've got to do all of these things. He only ever said to them, actually where you are here and now, you need to do this. And that might have involved quite a bit. But it wasn't like there was a, uh, a map set out, do all of these things. And so there's a little caution required in terms of picking and choosing. If it's a little comfortable or uncomfortable or challenging, sometimes those are the parts we need to really explore. Good question. They're all good questions, actually. Can I save myself from having to tell you all they were good questions? They're all good questions. 
just lots of them. <laughs> okay. I actually had a thought. I just uh, put them together in heaps, yeah. Ways of working with physical pain and the emotional pain it can trigger. Despair, panic, fear, hopelessness. Whenever we encounter something difficult or challenging, and I just, perhaps to say, of course, there's a whole talk, there's a whole week of teachings in response to your question. But it's real. First of all, just the recognizing that physical pain and emotional distress are often closely related and that we need to recognize what it is, A, that's there, and B, which elements of these two dimensions of what is an indivisible experience that might involve physical discomfort or pain and emotional discomfort or distress or pain is which. Not that they have to be completely separated, but we know, okay, this is happening in this form, expression, body. This is happening more in the sense of the emotional body, the felt sensitivity of the chitta. And to know that they easily lead to each other. Um, Ways of working with, there are probably so many different ways, but key ways are, first of all, awareness of. Knowing it's this. My knee hurts, that's pain. Or my heart aches, that's pain. Knowing what it is, being aware, what's my relationship to this? Oh, is it aversion? Is it disinterest? Do I blame myself for this? Do I blame someone else for it? So the primary reaction, unconscious, if we're unconscious, will be aversion. Even if we're conscious, it'll still be aversion, but maybe we won't act on it. Even really conscious people don't like pain, it seems. That's natural, physical or emotional. Once we know what the experience is, if we can recognize where it's located, oh, the pain's in my knee, or the ache that feels emotionally distressing is in the sort of the lower right part of my ribcage. It seems to be connected to my diaphragm. So we kind of have some sense of the biological, physiological location and it's hard or it's tight or it aches or it's tender and raw. So we start to get specific about what it is or it's a sharp stabbing pain in my knee or a dull ache in my shoulder and it doesn't seem to be emotionally correlated in that case. Naming it, you know, pressure, heat, Temperature. It's mostly what we feel in the body. Pressure and temperature. In fact, that's all we feel. Pressure and temperature and variations and changes in these. That's all the system is wired for. Hot, cold, warm, cool, hard, soft. Emotionally, it's much more complex and nuanced, but actually it's often made up of combinations of these, nonetheless, at the physical level. And so once we've got, so far as we can, clear with what's there... Then the question has got to be, well, what's useful with this? We can contemplate them from the perspective of um, um, anicca, anatta, dukkha. We can say, oh, it's changing. Or it doesn't appear to be changing. But maybe then it's... If we stay a little longer, oh, yeah, it's changing. We can contemplate it in terms of seeing, oh, this is dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. It's hard to bear. It's the, the phrase I find most useful. One of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, used it. Dukkha is that which is hard to bear. And we go, oh, yeah. When I use that phrase, it more easily evokes a compassionate response than just saying, it hurts, I don't like it. 
Or we can contemplate it in terms of anatta, just oh, it's a phenomena arising without having an owner. So we can contemplate these experiences, whether physical or emotional, and we may understand, and hopefully do, that while we can find some space and freedom with them through that, and it's helpful, in order to digest emotional um, suffering, we actually need to inhabit it in a skillful way. And the key thing with this is finding out how close it's useful to be and staying close but not too close. So that might mean bringing our attention to a physical pain and just seeing how close can I be before the habitual contraction arises. If we breathe out and soften as we go close, we might notice there's a point where I can no longer relax. That's close enough, or even back off. Likewise, emotional pain, we might be being with a sense that's arising and just saying, oh, okay, can I just hold this here? If I can't hold it, it means I'm too close. And we can step back without turning away. I could say a lot more there. Compassion for that condition is helpful. Finding an optimal distance of closeness or distance to give it space is mostly essential. And then actually caring about it, not rejecting it. And so we could say, in one sense, we can work with the wisdom eye, looking to see the characteristic, the universal characteristics of the phenomena. Another way we can work more from a compassionate or heart orientation, which is more to do with the holding, the opening, the embracing, the allowing, and therefore the facilitating of the healing of what's in the structure or the process itself. The fact that emotional, that physical pain can trigger emotional pain, which is the, other, the last piece of this question, to understand, oh yes, our relationship to body is one in which if we imagine that this body can always be comfortable and the fact that it's painful sometimes is because somehow we're doing something wrong, easily despair, panic, fear, hopelessness. Often those responses are to do with the idea that I'm supposed to be able to do something about this, and I can't. And there can be an emotional collapse that goes with that. And actually contemplating that, A, this is how it is. All human beings, all living creatures experience pain. And that our job isn't to fix it. Or to get rid of it. Of course, there might be moments where we need to make an adjustment to reduce the intensity of what we're encountering. But that it brings us in contact with the fact that we're not in control. Physical pain and the fact we sometimes just can't adjust our way out of it brings us into contact with one of the fundamental realities of life. It's not in our control. And some of the difficult emotions that arise there are an invitation for us to make peace with that but at the same time to really bring a lot of compassion to how hard that is for us that it's that way that it's not in our control that was more than the allocated three minutes but again important questions save that for later if most of the if I most of the time I get my cravings, what's the problem? My life will be mostly happy. I'm never as happy as when I'm craving. I love it more than anything else. 
Well, great, go for it. Let us know how it works out. Really, go for it. Let us know how it works out. You might be using craving a little differently than the Buddha did. If you're talking about a sense of a loving attraction towards, there can be something very beautiful and uplifted in it. But often the enjoyment we experience with craving, in the classical way we use the word craving tanha, is actually the fantasizing in the fulfillment that we're going to get when the craving is met and fulfilled. It's a fantasy enjoyment of when I get the thing I crave, then it's going to be great. And we can live our life constantly tipping into the next fantasy of what I will get that I crave. And never quite stopping and checking and seeing if it was actually that good the last time I got the thing that I craved. Because mostly what's good, from my experience, or what's the most obvious thing, of course there can be pleasure in you know getting something we like, something enjoyable that's hopefully relatively wholesome and not too harmful. But it's actually the relief when the craving drops and the moment of getting the thing I crave, the craving disappears and there's a moment of, ah, it isn't about the thing I've got, it's about the pause and the craving. And the interesting thing is, if I do more craving in order to enjoy the pause when it stops, does that make a lot of sense? I could just stop and not have to do a... It's like that thing, why are you beating your head against the wall? Oh, it feels so great when I stop. Why would I stop? It feels so good when I stop. To see how the logic hasn't quite landed with what's happening there. But hey, if it works for you... When, if ever, is it helpful to explore the personality types of greedy, aversive, and deluded in one's practice? Thank you. So these personality types um, are not something, as far as I know, that the Buddha really talked about at all as such. They're not in the suttas, but they emerge out of the Abhidharma, which is... um, There are different views on exactly where that entered into the Pali canon of the Buddha's teachings. Um, It doesn't really matter. But they suggest that most of us have primary tendencies that um, would be to either towards being a greedy type, an aversive type, and commonly misunderstood and mistranslated as deluded as the third type. I'll, I'll say what I mean a little more in a moment. But understanding personality types is like recognizing what our tendencies are. It's part of the field of, of self-knowledge. It can be really helpful. Um, I'm not a great fan of Abhidharma. Um, myself, it's not the most useful framework that I've encountered, but it has a lot in it. And so to be able to notice, and one classic way um, they're described is someone walks into the cake shop, they look in there and say, oh, I want that one. Greedy type. They walk in there and look, oh, I don't want that one. I'll have that one. Aversive type. Walks in, third one walks in, ah, oh, I think I might want that one, but maybe that one, oh, I don't know, maybe this one. Actually, they're a confused type. Confu- I'm one. That's my personality type, if I was to typologize myself. Um, and whoever translated it as deluded didn't actually understand it because they're all deluded. <laughs> they're all deluded. The greedy type, the aversive type, and the confused type are all deluded. Understanding that what our tendencies are, to understand it's not who you are because we aren't a something, we're no one particular tendency. So assuming 
we're always going to be one thing would be wrong. But we might notice our predominant tendency. Sometimes I'm definitely greedy. Sometimes I'm clearly aversive. And quite often I'm confused about choices and directions. And they correlate to the, of course, the, uh, the three primary poisons the, or um, asavas, outflows. What they actually do, I think, maybe most usefully is invite a sense of compassion for the suffering in them. If we see we're always reactive and irritable or angry or cynical, judgmental, to recognise, oh, this is just that particular tendency and I have a remarkably good dose of it, can often invite some compassion for ourselves in that. Likewise with the others. key piece in it to understand is that the greedy tendency, that craving orientation basically says I've got to have this, I've got to have this the aversive it's like I don't want that, I don't want that we notice that one's more leaning forward the other's more leaning back and the energetic feelings we can sense in our way of engaging experience, not just with what happens in the cake shop and the confused type as I said, commonly misrepresented as deluded, um, the tendency is to actually vacillate, to lean towards and away from. And the suffering in it is the sense of I have to find a solution to this. I have to say yes or no when I can't. I actually found the ultimate solution for my personal confused experience in a cake shop where my friends would be sitting down with their tea and cake while I'm still standing there going, and they're in, I buy them both. <laughs> I take them back and then I find out which one I actually like the most and then the next time it's easier <laughs> there was a long time where that wasn't an option due to my economic circumstances but fortunately things have moved on in that sense it was good for me to understand oh my mind will just keep doing that it just bounces boom, 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 boom. it's confused and it's like oh I can step back so any self-awareness in that sense is not about a rigidifying of our, that's who I am. It's more like helping us to become awake to what's happening and also to not identify with it, but bring compassion to it. You can take a survey later and see which, where, you, where you think you find yourself in that, in that three-part um, vision. Can you give some examples of the kinds of insights that arise from insight meditation? Well, there were some examples. I mean, I've actually touched some of them. Classically, the kind of insights into Anicca and Artadukha are one realm of insights, which is like understanding the universal characteristics of phenomena. Everything that arises that is here and apparent to the six sense base, bases of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking is known in that way as subject to anicca anatta dukkha impermanence non-self as in no thing separate and independent existent within it and dukkha unable to give lasting satisfaction equally unable to become a lasting um, obstacle to satisfaction it's the other side of dukkha so that's one level. Then there's another level which is really a little bit what we just spoke about, the getting to know personal, what it is that pushes my buttons, what my buttons are, maybe why I've got those particular buttons which 
goes into the realm of history and in a way our psychodynamic development getting to know oh when someone says that kind of thing to me I'll do anything for them when they say other things to me I want to kill them we want to get to know that because otherwise we're easily overwhelmed by our reactions and this is another realm of insight that we might get oh that's why it's hard for me when I'm coughing and I'm afraid that everyone else might be angry with me and actually they're just quite happy that you're coughing because otherwise they'd be falling asleep and we just don't know but try and convince ourselves that so personal insight other examples those are that's a simple one and then there's insight into the unconditioned the realization of the um the heart and um depth of the path which is not bound into those personal or not limited by the scope of either personal or we could say universal insights but nor is it separate from all of them um, those are probably the kinds of insights we could have that arise so I think I won't try and give more examples of those I hope and trust that you've had some of your own how are we doing? that's quite a lot of output isn't it? I'm just noticing it's quite a lot of output take a moment to breathe maybe I should it's funny there's a slightly competitive element that arises for me okay can we really do 15 questions and knowing my capacity to have quite a lot to say so there's a sort of a moment when I take the questions off the board and I think so will there be three maybe there'll be no questions and you know does it mean nobody's interested or um, that, that whole kind of we put ourselves out there and we see what comes and actually as I said my sense of real and I said this to Suvachar as I saw him just upstairs is, oh lovely really touched by the quality in the questions would you please talk a bit about the practice of bowing before and after a sitting thank you how oh, lovely bowing if maybe I don't know where I don't know whether you've seen me particularly doing it, um, but certainly I like to bow. I wasn't much into devotional practice or bowing for probably the first 10 years of my meditative journey. I kind of was a bit sort of, hmm, well, I guess if people want to, they can. And then I started doing it a little bit, you know. Over time, I've come to really love it. And so there's two or three things that are going on. First of all, it's a mudra. So it's engaging the body and the mind together. And there's something powerful about that. Sitting like this is a mudra too. There's many mudras. You know, the Buddha touching the earth, as we might see him. He's doing it with his right hand, but I'm left-handed, so I tend to do it with my left hand if I was doing the mudra. And uh, Kuan Yin here is in the meditative mudra. The hands here, gathered at the, the belly center, the heart of the Dantian. Bowing, bringing the hands together. For me, it's the hands coming together, these open, coming together, the heart. Expressing a sense of gratitude, of appreciation, of respect. So at the end of a sitting, for me, if I bow to people I'm practicing with, it's because I know that what we've been doing is not easy. 
and I'm appreciative and grateful and also honour the fact that it's being done despite that it's not easy. When I bow to the Buddha, to the image of the Buddha here and to my sense of the Buddha, which is not just an image here, but the, both the uh, historical human being and the remarkable life that the Buddha lived before his awakening and after it. And equally bowing not just to the image, but to the archetype, to the principle of awakening, the possibility that we as human beings can wake up. And that we do wake up. Not just that we can, but that we do wake up. This for me feels like something it's worthy to bow to, to respect, to appreciate, to express my gratitude for. And lastly, in the mudra, to put my head down below my heart and possibly on the earth, there's a humility, there's a humbling, there's a kind of like, just get this high-powered, sort of high-voltage thing and put it on the earth, ground it, let some of the bzzz drain out. And uh, in a way, return to something, you know, apart from on relatively few occasions for the odd animal, most creatures have their head as close if not closer to the ground than their heart. We're the only ones who've pulled our heads away from the earth. And there's a cost to that at all sorts of levels. There's another whole talk there. But just want to name, if you're interested to explore, notice what it's like for you if you put your head on the earth and touch the ground with that rather remarkable and potent part of our anatomy. And so that's what's going on for me when I'm bowing at the beginning or the end of a sitting or when here giving some teaching. Um, it can become an empty ritual as things can easily do, but it can also become infused with something very alive. And so that quality of care, of respect, of gratitude, of devotion, of commitment, of appreciation, of reverence, many things can be consciously summoned and brought into and associated with a shape, a mudra, and an action, the bowing. And when we do that, when we bring certain qualities consciously into heart and mind, and we associate them with a shape, or with a mudra, or with an action, they become more available to us through the shape, the action. This is the power of a mudra. So if we've done a lot of time sitting cross-legged, or on a stool, or in a chair, just sitting there, and we're already able to access more quickly or directly the possibilities of heart and mind that we've cultivated there. And so it actually gives us a pathway back, or it opens a pathway to us. Yeah, that's probably enough for that one. Um, I love it, just to say, bowing, I love it. You don't have to do it at all. Is there any quick way to enlightenment? <laughs> yes, but we're not going to tell you because we'd rather keep you here. Of course, it's such an understandable question, isn't it? Is there a quick way? You know, the Buddha said, there are those for whom the path is quick and pleasurable. There are those for whom the path is quick, but painful. There are those for whom the path is slow, but pleasurable. 
And there are those for whom the path is slow and painful. And most of us probably imagine that we're likely to find ourselves signing up for number four. (laughs) Maybe not you, I'm not assuming, but... um, Is there any quick way to enlightenment? Yes. Let go. That's it. Let go. Of course, the Buddha didn't use the word enlightenment. That's a modern, well, not modern, that's a sort of a, it's a Western word that comes out because it's actually related to Christian theology more than Buddhist. The Buddha talked about awakening and release. Awakening to the nature of existence, to what's here. Release of the patterns and tendencies of holding and contraction that bind us and blind us. Which is why letting go is the whole thing in the end. Whatever you can see you're holding on to, let go. There's no quicker way. Yanai, how would you describe the fourth jhana as you experience it? It sounds like a personal question. As I experience it. That's an assumption, isn't it? We could say, do you experience it? And then what's it like? But maybe one might reasonably assume that a Dharma teacher knows something of the jhanas. Um, Fair enough. I haven't put as much focus in the realm of absorption as some teachers choose to do in my practice and in my teaching my explorations of the jhanas left me with a sense of yeah this is all good but actually it's not what I'm most interested in so my experience of the fourth jhana isn't something from last week it was a little further back the last time I would be able to reliably say yes that was definitely the fourth jhana um that could even sound a little bit like, well, he's admitting he's done it. You're not supposed to do that, you know. Um, monks in the tradition are prohibited from speaking about their meditative attainments in terms of absorption and realisation with other, with anyone other than their teachers and peers because it might lead to inflation or to some sort of grandiosity. I think it's important that we acknowledge these things are available to us as human beings. They're possible for us, not for just special people. And um, the fourth jhana, I mean, it's remarkably peaceful. But you can read that. The Buddha says that too. And any number of other people who've written books about jhanas say something like that as well. So I'm not sure how much I add to the conversation. Uh, What struck me in the development of the jhanas, and I never would have said I attained them in terms of mastery. I never attained mastery, which is where your attention, you can by basically directing your attention, move freely between the eight. Jhanas. Um, but my overriding sense was them that each time one arrives in the territory of deepening concentration, this is true not just for jhanas, but any deepening of concentration of samatha, actually is a better word than concentration, calm and stability and unification, there's a way in which the initial separateness of mind and body becomes unified. And then the experience of that deepens. And What's striking in all of them is that at first it's like, oh, this is so good. And then, oh, this is interesting. And then, 
actually when sensitivity tunes to that level of subtle vibration and we start to notice how it's just a little bit not so good interestingly like pretty much everything else and this is recognizing instruction by saying okay so notice how well that was good but it's not the best because something could be better so then attain the next one so there's this process of deepening and then actually actively becoming dissatisfied with it and saying oh well that was good but the second one's better get the second oh well that's good but third one's better all the way through to the end and then oh well that's good but actually awakening's better so one could also take the word of some others who've been there and say well yeah they're useful I'm not knocking it but it's not what is most liberating and therefore one maybe doesn't have to go through all of that oneself but you can it's all good there's nothing to be taken away from the benefit of it so um Yeah, if you are moved to do so, wonderful. But it's also clear that it's not required for your awakening. This one also might be personal, I'm not sure. It says, what is the Vedana of your sense of self? So is it mine? Maybe. Is there a tendency, has it changed through practice and stream entry? Again, sounds like some assumptions there. Um... What is the Vedana of your sense of self? My sense of self? Your sense of self? The experience of sense of self is a very interesting thing to reflect on and attend to. It's not something that has any more self-existence than anything else, but we know it as a felt sense. There is something that we encounter that seems to think it's me. And mostly if one is really paying attention to it, the Vedana quality in terms of is this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, on first encounter depends what it's associated with in that moment, what it's identified with or is grasping to. Because if it's grasping hold of something pleasant, saying, I'm really great, it actually feels good at the surface level. But if one feels into the very sense of I that's in the core of that, it's actually contraction and holding, and it doesn't feel good at all. So there is, and there's actually a, a sort of, there's more nuances to that, but I think just to take the top and the bottom in, the self that arises attached, identified with, or engaged with something that's painful, unpleasant, that has a painful self-image, is of course the Vader of it is unpleasant. Though we could say, well, that's it's the Vedana aspect of the self-view and the identity. And in a way, the self doesn't appear except with something of that going on. And so we can't really say that it is there apart from when that is there. Um, and that has contraction at its heart. Again, is there a tendency? I'm not sure what that part of the question means. Has it changed through my practice? Yes, it's definitely more possible to recognize the painful elements of becoming entangled in self and to be able to release oneself, release myself from it. That's, I can't imagine why I'd be wanting to do this if that hadn't been the case, this being sitting here practicing and sharing the teachings. Um, 
the sense of self, is actually a very complex and subtle, but nonetheless, at the heart of it, in the end, a phenomena. It's a something that arises out of conditions. Everything that arises out of conditions also dissolves in conditions. And pretty reliably changes along the way. Oh, another out breath. It's only ten past three. I'm surprised. I'm going to pause for a moment. In fact, a good moment to pause. Does anyone have any questions coming from what you've just remembered you wanted to ask me and didn't put your hand up for? Or from what I might have responded to the question so far, bearing in mind that you might have actually asked a question that I misunderstood completely, and I certainly what can happen sometimes. Hmm, yeah. Um, I thought the Buddha said in the teachings that you did need to have the first four jhanas to achieve enlightenment. No. No, no. There's actually a clear. So the question, the, the question was: I thought the Buddha said that you did need to have the first four jhanas to get enlightenment. The Buddha often describes his process of entry into awakening in his own description of how he went through the first four jhanas. In fact, he went through eight and back, but from the fourth jhana that his actual his his, his consciousness awakened. Um, there are different versions of it. But there's actually a very clear um, articulation within the tradition of, in a way, two streams of followers of the Buddha. They were categorized as such. They were the um, those who attained um, awakening based or with a foundation of having developed absorption of jhana. And there were those who didn't, who had attained awakening, who had awoken, and I would say full awakening, rather than use the word enlightenment, as I said, because enlightenment is a Western term. Um, it's been kind of sort of added into Buddhism. Um, but that there are those for whom that wasn't part of their journey. So if at some point the Buddha said to somebody, you need to do this, that might be because apparently he had it with phenomenal psychic powers and he could tell this person needed it. I can't tell you and say for sure it never said anywhere in the texts that the Buddha says this. But I don't think it makes any sense because there's clear recognition of people who have awakened and come to a profound realisation who hadn't done so on the base of having developed absorption. And in fact, if you look at the whole movement that came out of Burma in the 20th century with Mahasi Sayadaw and um, Ubakin, two sort of monastic and lay um, teachers and the big lineages that have followed them, their whole teaching orientation was predicated on recognizing that you don't need to develop jhana in order for realization. That you could actually, therefore you also don't have to become a nun or a monk and spend 20 years at this. You can actually develop remarkable depth of practice and a very genuine release of the heart and mind in the context of retreat such as we're doing here, which is when these things started happening in the sort of middle of the 20th century. And that, interestingly, in those traditions, there's actually often a little bit of a pushback against the whole sense of jhana as if it's a, 
a bad thing and a dangerous thing and a distortion or a, um, a place people should avoid because it's risky. And that's also, to my mind, an unfortunate misunderstanding. It's like, there's this way the path can unfold and that way and, in fact, quite a few more other ways too. Thank you. Yeah, and of course there are a lot of things in our general ideas and assumptions about the teachings that we may have heard from someone authoritative, authoritative even hearing something from me who at least is attempting to sound reasonably authoritative without being too authoritative. Um, and we're not quite sure. So, you know, we sometimes have to choose who we're going to listen to. It seems... But that's how I understand the situation. Good. Anyone else had a response, reflection, or completely independent question arising? I've got a few more here. I haven't run out, don't worry. Maybe you'd be quite happy if I had. I don't know. It's one of the funny things up here. But anyway, I'm enjoying it. Okay, so here's another one of those someone told me. Someone told me that, that in formless jhanas, formless jhanas are the 5th uh, to 8th jhana, um, when you leave the body, other spirits can enter your body. Is it true? First of all, in terms of the formless jhanas, they're not predicated on... the resonance of the somatic field which we could say is body it's actually more formless realms that one is tuned into but they are all grounded in the fourth jhana there are some ways in which from some views the latter jhanas are understood as all extensions and developments of the first four that actually it's the fourth jhana with the extension into into space, into consciousness, and so on. And the infinity of space and consciousness and uh, this. So it's not actually about leaving one's body. That one is no longer consciously referring to the sense of the physical or the energetic somatic field does not mean one has left one's body. That's something else. Sometimes people who've practiced and are familiar with deep absorption may use that as a basis for exploring what it means to, um, you know, however we want to talk about it, leave one's body. You can't actually completely leave your body. But quite a large amount of one's psychic energy can, it seems. It's not something I've done or practiced or explored. So, But I've certainly talked to people who have. So, A, I don't think it's about leaving your body. It sounds like this is something that somebody is concerned about. Um, So, can other spirits enter your body? I don't actually know if there are such things that do such things, um, according to certain views on it and from um, from a different framework, for instance, in a more shamanic framework, they might suggest yes. 
whether these are other beings or simply energies or forces that are within the field of consciousness anyway, I can't really comment. But um, from the little bit of exploration and work within the shamanic world that I've done, um, generally some form of consent is required for that to happen. So just if you're worried about it, just be clear in your attention. That's not where you want to be happening. And you don't give consent to it. But... um, to be honest, I know very little about this, so please disregard anything I just said if it doesn't make sense to you or accord with your experience. Um, in terms of other spirits, I really don't know. I'd like to say, well, absolutely not, but wow, there's so many things that go on in this universe. Who knows? But I don't think it's something you need to be worried about too much. If you think something like that is what's happening for you, talk to somebody about it. Definitely. If you're worried something like that might happen, that's fear. Pay attention to the fear. That's already happening. For stream entry, does a person have to be free of personality view? How does one know when personality view is absent? If or when personality view is absent. Hmm. So stream entry is the first stage of awakening in the classic Pali Canon model of, um, of liberation. And... I don't know. I think Christina might have spoken something about this earlier in the week. I'm not sure from what she said she talked about. Um, but the um, the process of the release of the heart in terms of the what are called the supramundane paths, which is the, the insights into the fundamental process or the entry into and the insights into the fundamental process of awakening... Um, are understood as operating in relationship to the ten fetters. Was that something that was spoken about here? The ten... Um, no, okay. Just the three love. Sorry? She just mentioned the three love. Okay, okay. Well, one of them would have been personality view, yeah. So stream entry involves the... Um, the three lower pers- the lower fetters, they're all quite high fetters actually, so it's all relative, just so you know. Personality view, attachment to rites and rituals, and um, does anyone remember the third one? Doubt. Doubt, yes, thank you, gosh. I was just thinking, where's my mind gone there? Um, yeah, so the doubt about the path and its efficacy and one's capacity to... Um, follow it those three fetters so personality view here is understood as the kind of more coarse belief in a kind of almost conceptual way of I am this personality structure this is me and I am it and there's really not much space between the two so There are different views and many different arguments about what is stream entry, what is the marker of it. The way I would describe it to do so concisely is that 
and I think this is consistent with what the tradition articulates, is that there is an opening in the, the stream of consciousness in the chitta to actually directly recognize and comprehend the Dharma. That's it. Um, if we try and say exactly what it is, that Dharma that's comprehended, it takes quite a while and it doesn't actually come to a satisfactory conclusion. But in a certain way, um, it's awakening. It's not full awakening, but it's awakening. And in that moment, which is classically described as the path moment, and there are different views of what that looks like, and different experiences, people will describe it, but the way I would endeavour to describe it is that there's a, um, a dropping away of all holding. Why letting go is the, the vehicle for this. And including in that is the dropping away of personality view. And the seeing of, we could say, for brevity, the nature of the Dharma, the uh, awakened nature of reality, we could say, in that personality view is absent. If it wasn't, one wouldn't be able to see what one can see in that moment. And I'm using see, it's the wrong word. No, realize it's not a visual image or an ocular metaphor specifically. It's more using word, the word for knowing, actually, is probably better. One wouldn't be able to know what is known in a moment of awakening if the personality view is there. Because actually, what. Hmm. Yeah, one just wouldn't be able to see that. But that's different than saying it has to be absent prior to, so to speak. It's actually, its absence cannot be separated from the seeing. Does that make sense? It's not like, first of all, you get all the bits together and then you pile them up carefully and organize them into the right shape and then it happens. It's not quite like that. It's like the conditions come together and it's this. And that is actually how pretty much everything happens. The conditions come together and it's this. It's not the conditions come together and then it's this that comes out of them. The conditions and the even the unconditioned, it seems, is revealed in that way. And... How does one know if or when personality view is absent? Well, I guess you have to ask yourself, am I framing my experience in terms of self, in terms of me? Is this being seen primarily as my possession, as something that is produced by me, owned by me, definitive of me, or... Equally, interestingly, something that's got nothing to do with me, because that's just personality view that's been flipped on its head to try and look like wisdom. Because it's not that all of this has got nothing to do with us either. It, but it is not fixed and it is not definitive of, we could say, what we are. And its absence is actually characterised by a degree of peace and freedom it's quite simple but if we want to know if it's absent the tendency is to sort of step away from it to try and look at what's happening and say now I am experiencing an absence in personality view <laughs> you see the problem 
that's completely understandable that we would wish to, or try to do that. But in fact, rather than knowing it, is it absent, is it present, as a absolute thing, it's just become curious about what's the degree to which or the way in which I'm aware of that contraction of the sense of self here, personality view. Understanding that from the point of view of um, the, uh, the, the, the path, which is the way it's described, the path of Sotapanna, stream entry, um, it's not um, that that means the complete uprooting of the sense of I am. The conceit I am doesn't go until full awakening. It's part of what actually disappears in the, um, how should we say, the shift, the, um, the realisation between um, the non-returner and the arahant in the classic formulation. So, so the sense I am persists even in the stream entrant. And uh, I think that's important to recognise I think I'll stop there. There's more I could say again, but uh, time is moving on. And so this last question that I have, how can we use our practice to come to terms with distress we may feel about the rise of intolerance, hatred and divisiveness in the Western world. It seems that behaviours and opinions until recently considered inappropriate are now encouraged by some leaders. I could guess at what you're meaning there in terms of who you're referring to, but maybe it doesn't need to be said. This question is not about what actions we may choose to take presumably in response to the outer situation, not so, so much as it's about how to use mindfulness to find compassion for those who behave in such opposition to the precepts, i.e. how to find peace in our troubled hearts. So, it's a big question. How do we hold the world in the light of the potential for freedom, awakening, peace and at the same time seeing what often looks like ever-increasing or deepening expressions of blindness, of hatred, of tragic disconnection between groups of human beings, between human beings and other creatures and human beings and ecosystems in many such ways. How to hold that? How to hold that? To find peace in relationship to a situation where there's clearly harmful and unwholesome behaviours going on, I think there are two things required. Well, more than two, but two key things. One is to look very carefully into our own hearts and our own lives and see the ways, perhaps relatively small in comparison, but the ways that we too don't manage to live entirely in accordance with what we could call a blameless and a harmless life. 
And having done so, and this is a regular practice for myself, contemplating the ways in which our own pain and our own fear and our own need will drive us at times to act in ways that may cause harm to others or take positions that don't include the needs and the sensitivity of others. Having seen that for myself, it becomes possible to understand why it is and how it is that people do what they do because they're not actually in the end that different than us. Although their behaviour might be operating on a degree of harmfulness and blindness that may be considerably more entrenched and impactful than our own. But that seeing in oneself with compassion for oneself is a basis for seeing and not judging others, but understanding that that we need as a matter of urgency in our own practice to both be working with the freeing of our own hearts from such forces of blindness and reactivity, but we also need to be engaging in the world in such ways as contribute to the freeing of others from those forces too, because we are all subject to them. And in the end there is, if we talk about freedom, if we talk about liberation, there is no liberation for a single, for a single separate self, a you or a me, without encompassing the transformation and the liberation of all beings, all life. The very process of awakening reveals the not-separate nature of our existence and therefore clearly the not-separate nature of our awakening. So finding peace is a case of both understanding how it comes to be this way and doing what we can, which doesn't mean we can change the world or even ourselves overnight, but that we can take the steps that we can take and we need to and therefore come into alignment with the the flow, the movement, and I would say the deeper stream of life, which although it might look like the world is getting worse in some ways, and in some ways it's true, at another level I think part of how that's happening is because there is a continuing deepening Change in the potential for a collective human awakening that may not be just around the corner, I'm sorry to say, but that is in the trajectory. Just as when your practice deepens, often what you might notice is a whole pocket of reactivity emerges into the quiet, open space. So too, as our collective consciousness as a human species deepens, the pockets of that which cannot be allowed to continue have to show and they don't show saying oh I'm sorry for my existence they show up fighting for their predominance and that's part of what we see in the world today not just in the west actually in many different realms of the world but it is my own trust I guess and confidence that Although there's no guarantee in this particular iteration of human existence that will go in any particular way in terms of outcomes, that nonetheless life in its very nature is in a process of waking up. And that uh, the entirety of life is woven into that. And that uh, what we do here is part of that. So thank you for being part of that, for your practice, for your questions and your listening just now.
It's just after 3.30. I'd like to just sit quietly together for a minute or two and then the, the interviews will begin running five minutes late for the first four and I imagine I'll probably have caught up by the time we get to the second bracket because there's a space there. So the first four will be running five minutes late or so. If you just come along then. Thank you. And so please continue with your practice for all of our well-being and for this vast and mysterious life we are part of and it's waking up Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.